Testing. One, two, three. There it is. High, high praise to Jesus. All right. So you guys having fun? I'm having fun. You glad to be here? Yeah, two of you? I'm glad to be here. Do you know who's really glad you're here? Jesus is really glad you're here. He loves it. He's happy to see you. He's in a good mood, always. So we're talking about divine direction. Anybody need divine direction? Come on, we all need divine direction. We need the leading of the Lord. We're to be led by His Spirit, isn't that correct? We're to follow Him. We follow Jesus. And in order to follow Jesus, we need to learn how He leads us. And so today we've been talking over this last few weeks. This is the last message in the series. And today we're going to talk about the courage to start. Courage begins with divine prompting. We gain the courage to do what God is telling us to do by understanding that He is speaking to us. And so we have to learn to recognize how He speaks to us. Some would call it prompting. I prefer the language of prophetic impulse. <laughs> so He impulses you prophetically as a divine speaking to you from heaven. The way that works, what prophetic is essentially is how the Lord sees, how the Lord hears, and how the Lord feels. That's prophetic. So you may be, for instance, it happens through prayer. And it happens when the Lord is trying to guide you. You may be praying, right? You may be believing God for something. And God, you may be saying, I'm just going to use you, Diane. I can't help it. You're, just there. You're, you're the example that keeps coming to me. You may be asking the Lord privately, I need a new job. I'm looking for a new opportunity. You may be praying. And somebody might come and sit down at your table at the restaurant that you manage and may say, hey, I'm looking for somebody and here's my job opportunity. That's a prophetic impulse. How many knows that? Right? You're asking the Lord for something and Jesus sits it down right at the table and goes, here it is. Would you like this? You may be believing God, saying, Lord, I want to grow spiritually. And the opportunity for you to grow spiritually is all of a sudden the church has a Bible school or a Bible class. And then you go, nah, that's not the Lord. Or you may say, I feel alone. I feel like I'm alone. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares. And then the church goes, hey, why don't you join a group? Meet some people that are like you or are similar to you or love Jesus like you in your community. Nah, that's not the Lord. You have to learn to recognize the prophetic impulses. So sometimes it comes through what you're asking Him for. He's going to put things in your path that relate to what you're asking Him for. Other times, it's just Jesus interrupts your life. He just interrupts it. That's what you're going to see with Nehemiah. Major interrupter. Disruption is good. Jesus is a disruptor. A lot of people don't know that. He turns everything upside down, man. He turns over money tables. He turns over religious institutions. He turns it all upside down. So there's disruption in good ways. Jesus is a disruptor in that way. And one of the things he does with us is he disrupts our lives. Not to make things worse for us, but to make things better. He comes right across our path. And he opens things up to us that we would have never looked at before. So the prophetic impulses, the way that God speaks to us, they can be through simple ways or they can be profound. It can be just a little bit of a, a, a nudge to join a life group. Nah, no, yes, you need to. God says there's a benefit. You'll benefit from this and other people will benefit from you. It can be something about making a phone call. You could be just sitting around doing anything, you know, just you know, counting squirrels or whatever, and the Lord puts somebody on your heart or nudges you to call someone or do something that you need to happen or you know, something like that occurs. That's God impulsing you. You can wake up in the middle of the night and not know why. Anybody have that happen? Let me give you a little clue as to what's going on. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, do you know what that means? Jesus wants you to pray or he wants some interaction with you. That's what he wants. So you don't just wake up randomly in the middle of the night. God wakes you up. That's what happens. There's a verse I've been working off of, and I've been waking up very early lately, except Mondays. I don't wake up early on Mondays, so that day, no. But, and there's a, verse, and I've been, there's a verse in the Bible that says, I will speak to the womb of the dawn. And so I've been, and the Lord's been dealing with me on this, and so I've been praying into the womb of the dawn, calling the day to bear forth, calling time itself to bear forth. And I don't know what's going 
going, but I'm practicing this. I'm just trying to see where this is going to go. And so I just wake up in the morning. I begin to pray for people. I begin to prophesy. I begin to sow seeds of prayer and declaration into the womb of the dawn. God said if the dawn's got a womb, that means it can bear something, right? If the dawn's got a womb, then the, then the dawn, that means the day, can give birth to something, right? You're making the connection. You know, we, we think, I, I, I really believe that we think the Bible is poetry. We think that God's like Longfellow, you know, up there just seeing how beautifully he can write things. And we just admire, well, look at how beautifully the Lord speaks and how he writes. He's not speaking to get you to awe and marvel at his mastery of language. He's speaking to get you to understand that he means what he says. And there's depth in what he's saying. But if you treat it like that, then that's all it's ever going to be to you. But if he says, the dawn has a womb, then the dawn has a womb. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but the dawn has a womb. Let's see. Well, wombs give birth to stuff, and a womb becomes impregnated when something's placed in there. So I need to place something in order for this to give birth. That's just like how it works, right? I don't understand it, but that's what he said. So this must be beyond my understanding or beyond my thinking, so let's practice this. We have to treat the Scriptures not as poems. We have to treat the Scriptures as promises. We have to treat the Scriptures not as abstract or something that's away from us or different. We have to treat them as realities. God's not up there writing lyrics of poems just for the fun of it. He's just, he means what He says and He says what He means. His words have weight. God said, when I speak, it doesn't come back to me void. So his words are clearly not empty. When he says something, there's meaning on it. And what happens is, is that what we have to do is mine and extract the gold from the promises by which he speaks over our lives. You have to take ownership of them. You have to understand that they belong to you. They don't belong to somebody else. If you're a believer, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, all, everybody say it with me, all, come on, you can do better than that, all of the promises in Christ Jesus, yes and amen. How many's all? Now, do you believe that or don't you? I've met a lot of Christians that don't believe that. They don't believe all of the promises are yes and amen. They don't believe it. Okay, I believe it. So if God made a promise in the affirmative, I can have it. The affirmative promises are mine. The covenantial negatives are not mine. But the, the affirmative promises of God towards my life are mine. Everything that's positive and everything that's life-giving in that tone of promise belongs to me. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you live that way? Do you call those promises into your life? Do you stand in that purpose? That's what it looks like. Sometimes the divine prompting, God's going to prompt you. A prompting is something that just is here. It's not here. You may see something or have a vision, in the imagination or the mind's eye or the mind of the spirit, right? But it's not coming to your intellect. It's coming to your heart or to your spirit. It's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a nudging. And God may show you something or the prompting may be for a, towards a better life. You may be dissatisfied and God may be prompting you towards something that's better, right? He may be prompting you towards a desire for another opportunity. That's a divine prompting. Because you've got to know how he works. He loves you. Jesus loves you too much to leave you the same. And if you realize that what he is doing, he is never diminishing you. He is always elevating you. And when you see and know that if God is working in my life and he is prompting a transition or anything in my life, it's because his desire is to elevate me. That's what he does. That was the problem with the nation of Israel. God's anger with the nation of Israel wasn't because they were worshiping other gods. Yes, that's part of the equation. But the real issue was they were lowering themselves. God had established them and esteemed them to such a high level, they worshiped the God of heaven and earth. They drank from the fountains of living water. And God said, you go and hew out uh, dirt holes and drink water from dirt holes? So the anger was, or the displeasure that he put on his people was because they were lowering themselves. They were living beneath a standard that he had called them to be and live. In the New Testament, we have been paid for already by blood. So we don't have to perform ritual to stand in that. It's been given to us by right of inheritance by the blood of Jesus. 
And so God is calling you to another level. Everything he's doing in your life is to bring you to another level. So when he's showing you things about yourself that you don't like, he's doing it because that's in the way of what he wants to do with you. When he's constantly pointing at your anger problem, it's because he's showing you your anger is a barrier to what I want to do. He's, when he's constantly pointing to your fear or your uncertainty or whatever it may be, he's pointing at that and showing you that, not because he's going, look how weak you are, na 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 You know, we think that he's trying to diminish us. He's pointing at it going, this is, a, this is an issue that you need me or we need to partner together to solve because this problem is an inhibitor to where I want to bring you. We have to see him that way. The way we see the Lord and the way we know how he's working, we have to perceive him differently. He's doing something to bless us. He wants nothing from you. He wants everything for you. These are things you have to tell yourself. The devil is a liar straight from hell. And he wants to lie. And his biggest thing is he's a blamer. He's not just an accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser of the father. Look what God did to you. Look how the Lord is treating you. If God loved you, it wouldn't be that way. He's an accuser. Look what he did went before Job. Does Job serve God for nothing? It's because you bless him. That's the only reason he serves you. If you can read between the lines of that insult, he's insulting the character of God. He's saying the devil, as an angel of light, it's interesting, you read that story, none of the other angels recognized him. None of the other angels, you don't see him going, hey, what's Lucifer doing here? Why is he here? Because he was masquerading as an angel of light. He was among the many. The Bible says the angelic hosts present themselves to the Father. So the Lord is the overseer of all. He's the king of all. But he releases his angels to minister unto you and me and to perform his work. Then we partner with them and we partner with the Spirit. And this is how this whole thing works. But the angels present themselves to give an accountability. Is God not involved? Of course God's involved. But you, he's a delegator of power. He doesn't do everything himself even though he can he delegates authority. He delegates dominion. He delegates. So the angels are presenting themselves to the Lord, and none of the other angels recognize them. They were like, Harry, you see Lucifer over there? What's he doing here? I don't know, Jim. What are you? Well, I don't know. Let's, I don't know what's going here. They didn't know him, but the Lord knew him. And he said, where you been? What are you doing? Roaming around like a roaming lion, seeing who I can devour. I'm roaming about looking for Christians who don't know who they are, I'm roaming about looking for Christians who I can lie to and get them to partner with lies and believe things that aren't true. I'm roaming around looking for people who don't want Jesus because I have full right to them. That's what I'm doing. And you know what he does that? All day, every day, 24-7. He doesn't take a break. Okay? It's, that's what the devil does. That's all he does. He's looking to destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. Lie, deceive, shift everything. But he says to the father, does Job serve you for nothing? You know what that means? He's literally saying to God himself, you are not worthy of love. You are not worthy to be loved for who you are. The only reason these people serve you is because you give to them. If you didn't give to them, they'll curse you to your face. Because you, by character and nature, are not worthy of love. You don't, you don't see the ego there, the height of arrogance? To say that directly to his own creator. He's saying that to the Most High God. So everybody thinks the issue was with Job. The issue was far from Job. It was an issue right unto the Lord. He affronted the Lord to his face. You don't think he's going to affront you? You don't think he's going to challenge you? He sits down with Jesus. If you're the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, what do you mean, Jesus didn't know who he was? Of course he did. Of course he did. I feel the Lord, the Bible opens that up as a window so that we can understand how the devil operates in our life. If you are a Christian, oh, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't be doing that. That's a lie, first of all, because <laughs> none of us are perfect, right? Oh, if you are the child of God, if God really loved you, this wouldn't really be happening. You know, this is, you know, this is totally God. So what that means is God's not really loving or you're not worthy of God's love. Guilt and shame guilt and shame. He loves you from afar with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. How much is nothing? It's everything, right? The Bible says nothing can separate God's well-meaning attitude towards you or God's intention to benefit you, then nothing can. So why are you believing anything but that? 
If you're believing that something can separate you, then makes God not love you. Love is the activation of the highest good. So God's intent in your life is always for your highest good. The highest good from his heart, not from your perception, from his world. Right? So nothing's going to stop him from doing that. In other words, he doesn't give up on you. Aren't you glad? I mean, I should, we should get a hallelujah off of that or some, some kind of praise. Say it with me. He doesn't give up on me. And that's good news. It's true. So he's going to prompt you. He's going to prompt you towards a better life. He's going to prompt you towards things that need to change. He's going to prompt you towards opportunities. And it may be to change the world. Say this with me. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the absence of self. You do not have to be courageous. Courageous doesn't mean you're fearless. Courageous means you're not thinking of you. Firemen run into buildings because they're not thinking of themselves. If they're really thinking of themselves, they're thinking, uh, I could be like a, you know, a candle in there or something, man. I mean, I'm going to like burn up. They're not thinking of themselves. They're thinking of something higher. People risk their lives or do heroic things or courageous things because they're thinking of something or someone higher than themselves. This is why Christians should be the most courageous people in the world because we have the ultimate. We have what the Bible calls a high calling. Let us press on to the upward or the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. We should be courageously advancing the gospel, courageously advancing the kingdom in our lives, through our lives, the things that Jesus wants in the world. We should be courageous because it is something that is far more reaching than our own lives. And he calls you into that. You serve a king. Do you know that? How many people you know that serve a king? I don't know any. I don't even know anybody that serves a president. But you serve a king. You not only serve a king, you're welcome in his courts. Do you understand that? Do you understand that he calls you divine royalty? Do you understand that? Well, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. This is when everything begins to change. When you start getting this stuff and you start saying, wait a second, I'm divine royalty. I am who Jesus says I am. I am a son of the highest. I have access to his world. Wait for it. And I have the authority to release it in mine. Haha. <laughs> I have rights. I have inheritances. I have privileges. I'm in covenant. So whatever doesn't look like Jesus, I have dominion over it. That's what it means. Come on. So I was talking to first service. I'll probably come up in the service or later part of the message, but I'll skip it. I was talking to first service about repentance. Re say it with me. Repentance, repentance is a good thing. Repentance is returning to Jesus everything that doesn't belong to, to Jesus. Repentance in the Greek, in the Hebrew, this is how we understand repentance, right? And I'm going to tell you what the Lord's been telling me to repent of so you guys can all feel safe and secure as I'm talking to you about repentance. Usually the pastor tells the church to repent, but he himself doesn't talk about repentance at all. Repentance doesn't really have to do with anything. It doesn't have to do with, we think it's smoking, drinking, chewing, hanging out with those that are doing. I went to the club last night, oons, 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 and I had a little bit too many beers. I need to repent. It, that's not really, that's not really, that's such a low level of understanding of what repentance really is. Repentance is returning to the Lord, giving it back. The Hebrew word is teshuva. The Greek word is metanoia. So when Jesus is speaking and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, return to me because the kingdom's here. So repentance at its core is returning your life to Christ. That brings salvation. Then what brings the kingdom is when you start returning every area of your life to Jesus. Lots of Christians who've returned their life to Christ have inherited salvation, but there is no kingdom dominion in the other arenas of their life because they've not surrendered them unto Christ. Your money, your time, your talent, right? Your sexuality, ouch, right? Your morality, your attitude, your actions. You think that belongs to you. Not when you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't. So he'll let you hold them, and you'll have no kingdom authority. You have no kingdom authority in your finances until you surrender your finances to Christ in the way that he's designed. I don't believe that. Have your way. <laughs> you have to surrender it. It's teshuva. Lord, I repent of my ownership of my finances. I surrender them to you. I, do, I understand what you want accordingly, and I give them to you. And he releases back to you. You know how to understand? I, we think we own our time, that our time belongs to 
boss. Your time does not belong to you, Christian. We give more time to our bosses than we do to Jesus. Where our bosses is paying us. Well, what do you think Jesus does? He even tells us, you offer more to your governors and more to your employers than you do to me. Consider your ways. We don't like inconvenience in the American churches. I'm just telling you how it works. What God does with your time is he multiplies it. One thing that happens when glory shows up, eternity is present. You know glory's in the room when there's timelessness. When you just sat through an hour of me teaching you and you're like, wow, that seemed like 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Because glory's in the room. When you just sat through a worship experience that was 40 minutes long and it seemed like it was five minutes. It's because glory is in the room. When glory shows up, timelessness enters. So could it be that when we surrender our time into the glory, God extends it? Just a thought. And that's kingdom dominion? Could it be that when we surrender our finances, Jesus takes what little you think you have and he multiplies it? Could it be? That's kingdom power. That's not natural power. It's kingdom power. Repentance is returning to the Lord what is not, you, in what we repent of our anger, we give it to him. We don't acknowledge, we think we just, here's what we perceive repentance as. A word, and we stand and we kneel at the altar and we cry and we weep and we're sorry, and then we judge each other on the level of repentance that we think is acceptable. Oh, I don't think you're repentant. Why? I didn't see snot coming out of your nose when you were crying there, brother. You only asked for two tissues. If you were really repentant, you'd have used that whole box. You're not repentant. Says who? We think, that, we think that that is a measure of what repentance looks like. We don't understand repentance at all. Repentance is giving it back to him. It is a releasing of your lordship. I am not lord over this. You are. And here's the fault of the church. We think just because we've confessed Christ as lord that everything's okay. You need to look at your life and see where you hold dominion. What area of your life is lined up in a way that is not conducive with the glory of God? Which one is it? Your attitude, your time, whatever it is. Where is it that you're operating in your life and God says this and you go, no, 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 I say that. Jesus says tithe and a Christian goes, oh, we don't need to tithe. Who told you that? I did. I'm my money. I work for it. Oh. Okay, have your way. I always tell people that one that want to get, we're going to use finances. Just so we're not going to, I could step on everybody's toes in a lot of ways, but tithing, tithing and finances steps on the whole room's toes so that nobody feels like I'm singling anybody out. You know, I could pick on a whole myriad of things, but we'll pick on this one just because that relates, we all have a universal relationship to money, okay? So that we know, Pastor Kevin's not isolating anybody here. <laughs> we say, nah, we do it our way. Nah, we do it like that. Bible says this, let that person expect to receive nothing from the Lord. I always tell people, they don't want to give us, so you don't have to give. You get to. But if you don't want to, that's okay. Keep your money. But what I tell them, adjust your expectation. Don't expect God to do anything more than provide for you. Don't expect Him any more. That's called common grace. Don't expect any level beyond common grace. Common grace is He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He'll basically provide for your needs. It's called the level of you don't go beyond the level of survival in the kingdom until you start tithing. Crickets. When you start tithing, you move from survival to success. From success, he moves you to significance. You're not seeing or sniffing, or you won't even be in the room towards your own life with significance financially or destiny until you begin to do that. You're locked down. Oh, I don't know about that. What? I'm not teaching a message on tithing, but I could. But I'm just telling you, that's one of them. And you can relate that to every single area of your life. You must return to Jesus what is rightfully His. And if you don't, nothing's going to change. You can beg heaven. You can pound on heaven. You can claw the rug. You can cry out through a whole box of Kleenexes if you want to, crying out to God. But until you do your part, the kingdom does not activate. Period. So there you go. <laughs> come on. Somebody give me an amen, or I'm going to come down here and shout myself down here in a second. This is how it works, man. And what repentance looks like in our own lives, right? So these are the general categories. Let me tell you how it works in relationship to destiny. Okay? Let me show you how this works. I'm always asking the Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want for my life? My life is not my own. My life is along to you. Even though I, I have my own inclinations to do my own thing, I'm constantly subjecting myself unto his kingdom. 
and I'm saying, my life does not belong to you, my, my, to me. My life belongs to you. My time is not my own. It is yours. The best of me does not belong to anybody else. The best of me belongs to you. What do you want from me? And you know what it'll ask me? What do you want, Kevin? That's the first question. That's the first question. What do you want? And I, then I, I tell you guys that's a whole process, figuring out what you want. And I go, I want significance. And I want, what I, for influence and significance is what I've come up to. And I said, Lord, I want you to give me influence and significance. And I offer that to the Lord. And then he begins to relate back to me the things in my life that he wants me to do that relate to what it is that I'm now asking him for. But until I know what it is I'm asking him for, he's not relating anything back to me. And so we live in Christian limbo. Oh, I just want the Lord to tell me what he wants. If God tell me what he wants, then I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Well, the first thing he wants you to do is give dominion into the key areas of your life. That's the first one. And then after that, it's to begin to offer yourself to him. And as you begin to offer all of you to him, he's going to, you're going to go, what do you want from me? And he's going to ask you the question, what do you want? And that is a refining process, a refining process. What you want is always related to why do you want it? Why do you want significance? Why do you want influence, Kevin? Because I want to move the body of Christ into the glory. Because I want to see the destiny of Jesus and everything he brought, for, brought forth brought into my generation. That's what I want. Because I want to see a legacy. I want to see a church. I want to be a part of churches and a church movement that changes the world. That's what I want. And I want to influence the body of Christ as a whole. Why? So you can get your name on a glossy? God forbid. I have no interest in me. I have no interest in fame. I have no interest in vanity. All I want to do is influence people into what Christ has died to bring them. And then he starts identifying things in my life. But that, you know how long that took me? That took me a long time. I'm giving you stuff that's taught, that I told you guys last week. I'm giving you stuff that's cost me years of my life. And it seems so simple. Oh, that seems like a real simple principle. Yeah, did you figure that out? <laughs> did you labor for that? I did. And so I'm telling you something that's very but it's profound. And if all you do is treat it as a trifle, it's going to go right over your head and you're going to remain unchanged while glory is in the room right now. I'm bringing you kingdom glory right now. Life-changing power. Not rhetoric. Not, you know, doctrinal mystical things. I'm bringing you reality. We have to understand what it is that we want and you've got to do the hard work of understanding what I want. Well, I want a million dollars, Pastor. Well, why do you want it? Because I never want to have to pay a bill again in my life. Okay. Does that line up with the kingdom? Where's Jesus in that equation? If he were to give you a million dollars today, what would you do? Well, I don't know. Well, when you figure that out, then we can start talking about it. And when you figure out how that million dollars is going to honor the Lord, not you, then we're lining up with heaven. Most people want things for their own selves. You're in narcissism and you're actually in sin because that was the sin of Adam. He wanted it for himself. And until understand that God will give it to you when you get it through you and until you understand that when you align with the glory you get to bask in it you understand the glory is not ours but we get to stand in it when you give Jesus what he wants he pays for it and gives you a tip but it's not about you it's about him and these are the changes that have to make in our hearts these are the things that have to change and transform within us these are the inhibitors heaven has come down Open heavens are now. And we get all these little tinklings. Woo, we got open heavens. Woo, we got open heavens. Is that enough? Just because, okay, we saw a little thing here, a little thing there. We saw something glitter in the room. Somebody got laughing and fell out and started rolling on the floor. Oh, open heavens, open heavens. Okay. But I believe open heavens is way more substantive than that. I believe open heavens is the glory and the kingdom of God coming into the now in every way. And we think it's just like little tinklings, little fuzzy, ooh, it was the open heavens. They sang the song and I got the goosebumps. It was open heavens in that place. Heaven comes down and manifests when we line up. You can, everybody can experience the Lord. I'm talking about manifestation, where it is operating with dominion in your life. That's what I'm talking about. Come on. When we bring ourselves into this place, the thing is, is that it's not far off. Jesus said the kingdom is near you. Where is it? Anybody know? How far away is that? He says you can reach it. The kingdom's right here. But what's he say before it? Teshuva. Huh? See the principle? In order to grab the kingdom, you've got a teshuva. 
You have to return. You have to surrender what you think is right. You have to surrender what you've been doing and where you hold lordship. You have to surrender and you lay hold of it. That's why salvation is immediate. When you surrender your being, all of a sudden the person's like, whoa, what happened to me? Something happened. I don't even know what happened to me, but something happened. You've laid hold of the kingdom. Well, what would happen if you began to lay everything down? Could it be that you could lay hold of the kingdom here and lay hold of the kingdom here and lay hold of the kingdom here and lay hold of the kingdom here? Could it be? I would say yes. God's purposes in your life begin with a dream and begin with a vision. I'll ask you a simple question. If you don't have a God-given dream, why not? If you don't have a God-given vision, why not? That's my first question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? That's my first question. Well, I don't believe God will speak to me. Well, who told you that? Who told you that? Well, I don't believe God gives visions and God gives dreams. Who told you that? Your Bible doesn't say that. Nowhere, okay? It begins with a dream. And this dream and this vision is a progression of thought. Sometimes it looks like that. You know, I could have a better life. You know, I should have a better life. I must have a better life. Now you're in motivation. Until you reach the level of must, you're not motivated at all. You'll just be good and should. You're in la-la land, dream world, somewhere over the rainbow. Good and should doesn't get it done. It's when you must. This must happen. I must change. I must grow. I must fill in the blank. It relates to your household. It relates to the world around you. This must happen in my home. This should could happen in my, you know, we could have a better marriage. You know, we could. Yeah, I think we could too. Everybody goes off. No, we should have a better, you know, you're right. We probably should. We should have a better relationship. You're right. We should do that. No, we must have a better relationship. We must. You see how it shifts? Because must brings you to the point of change. You're not at the point of change. It could. You're not at the point of change. It should. You're at the point of change. It must. This must happen. Next slide. You don't think you're a dreamer and a visionary? Acts chapter 2, everybody say, this is not a poem, this is a promise. It shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord. I will pour out my spirit, fresh outpouring. You need a fresh outpouring, we sang that. Your sons and daughters will what? They'll prophesy, so we shouldn't be freaked out about prophetic. We have the prophetic team here today, by the way, so they're going to be ministering after the service, so I encourage you to take advantage of that. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men shall see, dream, see visions. Your men, old men shall dream dreams. And he goes as far as to say, this promise is to your sons and daughters, to your maidservants, to your manservants, those who are near and those who are far off. Could that be any more inclusive? Could that promise encompass anybody else? He's saying this promise is to all who enter the kingdom through Christ. Dreams and visionaries. You are a dreamer and a visionary by nature. So if you are not dreaming and having visions, and these are visions that look like this. They're both spiritual dreams, spiritual visions, encounter dreams, encounter visions, but they're also dreams of a reality that's different than the one you have. Dreams and visions of a reality that is different than what you're experiencing. So they're both supernatural, and they are natural. Do you understand that? To see as heaven sees, to hear as heaven hears, to feel as heaven feels, to experience in the spirit, yes, but also to see in the spirit and release into the reality. It's part of your divine heritage. Say it with me, I'm a dreamer and I'm a visionary. If, you don't have, if you're not getting dreams and visions from the Lord, and I'm not talking about spiritual encounters. Maybe you're asking, God, I want a spiritual encounter. I want to see angelic visitation. Maybe you're asking him for that, and he doesn't want to give you a vision of an angelic encounter. Maybe he wants to give you a vision of a better life, and you're asking amiss. Now maybe you're asking for a vision of a better life, and he wants to give you a vision of an angelic encounter. You know what I'm saying? You know, so ask him to give you a vision. Ask him to help you dream dreams. Dream dreams. You can dream dreams wide awake, or you can dream dreams while you're asleep. You agree with that? true right so it's part of your heritage we're dreamers and visionaries this is who we are god shows vision god shows dreams god shows future god shows hope nehemiah okay so this is a prompting so here's a guy his name is nehemiah nehemiah is in a place he doesn't like around a people he doesn't like but everything's going really well okay he's going to get prompted out of a comfortable place nehemiah is serving a king they're in a, they're in a country in a city called babylon 
They're in the capital of Susa, so they're there. Nehemiah has been promoted. He's now serving the king. He's in the king's palace. Everybody in the king's palace wore Armani. Everybody in the king's palace wore Versace, and they all dripped with gold. So they're all, he's walking around in silk, nice mohair suits. You know, He's got the ring. He's got the bling, gold chains. Probably lives in a nice apartment in the city, right? Eats at the best restaurants. He's got catering buffets when he has a business meeting. Oh, this is the king, so we know we're going to be catered. Everything's going easy and smooth for Nehemiah. Beautiful, couldn't be better, and God interrupts his world. He interrupts him. Nehemiah leaves it all and goes and does what God tells him to. And I've asked myself, because we all want to think like, Nehemiah was this tortured prisoner, like he had chains on him. You know, Nehemiah wasn't a tortured prisoner. He was a direct servant of the king. You had to be beautiful. If you, this is how these guys were, right? So if you were the king, if I'm, if I'm the king of Babylon or I was the king of the Persians, both of them were similar in this way, the only people that were allowed in the room with him, you had to be good-looking, right? I mean, you had to be, like, handsome, strong, beautiful, gorgeous, and you had to be um, happy. If you weren't happy, the king wasn't happy. So he wanted, like, really positive, really up and beautiful people around him at all times. And they spared no expense. His servants had the best. They had the best of everything because they were representatives of the king. Nehemiah hears a story. So they had been in Babylon. They had, they had forsaken the Lord. And God says, listen, I'm going to put you all in a time out because you guys seem to be losing the script as far as worship. So I'm going to take you into a place and we're going to put you over here and you're going to sit in a time out for a while. And after 70 years, after the 70-year time out, I'm going to let you go back home. Well, the 70 years had passed and a portion of the Jewish people had gone back home, but not all of them. And so there was a report that came back from Jerusalem and Nehemiah wanted to know, hey, how are the people doing? The people that Jesus has commissioned to go and do a work, are they doing anything at all? And they're like, no, nah, we're not really doing anything there, you know. Everybody's just kind of hanging out, you know. You know, Harry's got a new house up on the hill, looks really beautiful, but, you know, it's all going good. Wives and kids, lots of kids going around, yeah, it's nice going on there. We set the shop up again, yeah, stores open, grocery market, all that stuff. And then Nehemiah's like, but what about the Lord's house? What about the temple? What about the center and the heart of all that we are? What's going on with that? Oh, nothing's going on there. Nobody seems to really care. And that's where you get a lot of the prophets, where the prophets, the old Haggai, um, Zephaniah, all these guys are prophesying into that culture, saying, you guys need to change off of what you're doing. Your focus is wrong. But that's the report that he got. So Nehemiah, what's Nehemiah do? He hears this word, and he's moved. He's moved on the inside. Something that was spoken to him moved. He was, he was imprinted. Something hit him. Kind of like I had a girl one time, and she went down to Brazil, and she saw all these homeless kids running around on, you know, the, the, the forgotten kids, you know. Haiti's the same way. People have sex, they have kids. They, as soon as the kid's old enough, they just shove them out on the street, and there's just mass amounts of orphans. A lot of third world countries, that's the, that's the name of the game. So she goes down to Brazil, she comes back to me, and she goes, you know, Pastor, I saw all these orphans and all these people down in Brazil. We really need to do something about the orphans in Brazil. And I said, the Lord is burdening you with that. Not me, not the church. That's your, that's your vision. This is what Christians do. Well, the church needs to do something about that. You need to do something. No, you need to do something about that because that's the Spirit's prompting. What I did is I coached her through the process, and I told her, I said, listen, you may not be able to go down to Brazil and solve all the orphan problems in Brazil. There's lots of kids in, the, in, the, in our city that are abandoned, that are in the system, that are abused and neglected. And I pointed her to like three ministries that I knew of that served them. She picked one. She went and served that ministry, went there. And I said, you can do something in your own backyard. You don't have to fly to Brazil. It's right here. It's in front of you, you know. And so she went there. She, she said, wow, I really love this place. I love what they're doing, all this other stuff. And she said, I'm just praying and believing God as to how I can help them. And eventually it was called His House Children's Ministries where she went. And she came back to me and she founded a nonprofit called His House, Child His House Helpers. So she was moved to do something. I, you know, saying, we need to change Brazil. Well, maybe it's not Brazil that you can do. Maybe you can do something here. Why don't you explore it? She does. Again, she's moved, and she steps in and begins to ask God what it is that he wants her to do specifically. She took ownership of it. And this is what Nehemiah does. He takes ownership of what God was moving on him, right? So when God moves your heart, he may not be moving to you to action. The simplest action is prayer. Nehemiah begins to pray. He begins to fast and pray. He calls out to God. And he says, oh, Lord, you're awesome. You are the one who keeps your covenant and you're merciful. Declares his nature, right? And then he says, open your eyes and hear my prayer. He presents himself. And then he repents for ancestral sins. See, there's repentance. 
Lord, we've been weak when we were supposed to be strong. Lord, we've been fools when we were supposed to be wise. Lord, we've been indifferent when we're supposed to matter to us. He repents. He returns to the Lord the thing that's in the way. And then he asks God to remember him and keep his promises. That's what happens. So there's a key part. So God's going to impulse you. He's going to give you a drive. Maybe a drive to change the world, but maybe a drive to change your life. Maybe a drive to live differently. Maybe a drive to be more spiritual or be more godly or be whatever. He's going to drive you there. And when he does, he's going to reveal some things about you. One of the things he's going to reveal is what's in the way, if you'll ask him. I asked the Lord, this is where I was coming in the beginning, I'm asking the Lord, what is in the way? What is in the way? What is in the way, Lord? What is in the way? And I know the principle of repentance, and I practice it all the time. And I heard the Lord, so y'all can judge me. So here it is. I'm going to step myself, I'll just stick myself out there. You know, I felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to repent. I told you before some other things, but he told me this one, this was just recently. I want you to repent for the weakness of your youth. Well, I was like, what? He first he told me, I want you to repent for weakness. I'm kind of like going, where? Okay, where, 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 where weakness? And I could feel it, but I didn't know where he was calling that from. You know, and I saw myself younger, almost maybe before I was, before I came to Christ. You know, I had adopted a spirit of, you know, weakness when I had, should have been strong. I had been fearful when I should have been faithful. You know, it was early on, somewhere in that range. I didn't quite get my finger on it, but I could feel where he was telling me. And so I said, Lord, I repent of that. I return that to you. I renounce all agreements with that. I renounce all covenants with that. I renounce all partnerships with that. And I give it back to you. And I receive from you a spirit of grace, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of power. Why would he ask for repentance? And why would God, when you start asking Jesus for things, he's going to tell you things that seem offbeat and off color to you. What he's doing, see, the devil likes to hide things. He sticks things under his leg. He holds cards under the table that you don't even know are there. And he uses them against you, and he uses them as inhibitors into what God's doing. And then what he does is he ministers to your pride. Oh, Kevin, weakness, you? <laughs> Come on, y'all can judge me. Wait till you start asking him. Let him show it to you. Let him start calling you out. But you've got to realize that when God's calling you out, it's because he's calling you up. He's not calling you out to call you, call you down. He's calling you out to call you up. Come on. Yeah. Come on. That's it. And so he calls you out to call you up. I told you a few weeks ago when he's telling me, I want you to repent for the sin of unbelief. That one about knocked me out of the chair. I was like, are you serious? Why does that happen? Because I am constantly presenting my life to the Lord. Constantly presenting my life to the Lord. And I'm asking him when I feel like I'm at stopping points or I feel like there's some lack of whatever, I'm asking him, am I, what's in the way? What do you want from me? What are you calling out of me? What, is in my, what, is, what needs to change in me in order to do what you're asking me to do? What is holding me back from what it is. Why can't I see clearly? Why can I only see to this level when I want to see to this level? What is the problem? Why am I only able to go this far when my heart is to go that far? What's the problem? The lie is, the devil lies to you and tells you it's God holding you back. That's the devil. He wants to blame Jesus. The problem with Jesus, how far do you want to go? You want to get out of the boat? Go ahead. You want to sit at the right hand? Well, he'd give it to you if it was his to offer. He ain't holding you back. He gives the spirit without measure. You think he's holding you back? Are you crazy? You hold you back. There are issues within your own life that are unresolved. There are attitudes within your own life that are unresolved. There are things that have been incepted into your life at very young ages that the enemy has placed in you and claims right and authority over that you're not even aware of. And it is in dominion and relationship with the Lord that he starts calling it out. Calling it out. You have a sin of unbelief. I'm like, are you nuts? That's literally almost how I'm like, what? Come on. Where? You show me where. <laughs> you know what he does? He's going to show you exactly where. He's going to go right there. I'm like, there? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. I've done a lot of deliverance and I've worked with a lot of demonic things. And I have watched the devil claim hairs. A hair. And if he can take it, he presses right up against it. And you think he's playing nice? He ain't playing nice. And I learned a long time ago, if he's got anything on me, I want to know what it is and I want it out of me. 
He's got an attitude, an action, and anything, that's, anything that he can claim ownership over me over, I want you to tell me. And it's a progressive revelation. It doesn't happen all the time. So in other words, what I need to go here, he's going to tell me. And then when I get here, he didn't, he why didn't he tell me that back there? Because he didn't need to tell me that back there. Because what he was showing me, the weakness, wasn't necessary for me to get here. The unbelief wasn't necessary for me to get here. But the weakness and the unbelief are necessary for me to go there. Unbelief is the sin of the church. We don't believe God's who he said he is. If we did, you'd live differently. If you believe God was the blesser of you, you would live accordingly. But because you do not, that is evidence of your unbelief. Crickets. We use money. If you believe God was the owner and the possessor and his promises were true, you'd do what he said to do. You would live a, li a completely different life. You'd have a completely different attitude. So the sin of unbelief is prevalent within the church and rampant. And it goes, and, you, and it's not, that's a sin that you're always going to have to return to him. That's a progressive return, right? So I've returned a lot of that, and I'm like, where is it? And he's like, you don't believe that I am who I said I am. And I'm believing God for something big. And he's showing me things, and he's saying, if you believed that I was going to do what I'm showing you, you would not be acting the way you're acting. Come on. Can we talk? Oh, no, pastor. We're religious. We are the religiously elite. We have it all figured out. <laughs> we have our doctrine completely figured out. This is how we are. And this is why the kingdom is nullified and neutered. Because we don't go to the level of change. We don't go to the level of transformation. And the kingdom is neutered and powerless. I do not want... The power of the gospel and the kingdom and the dominion of God in and through my life is non-negotiable. There is nothing that I will not yield. There is no shame I will not bear. There is no indignation I will not receive. None. I'll give you another one. Fear of men. Try that one on. It's going to confront you. Lord, what's in the way? You're afraid of people. What? I'm not afraid of people. I'm bold as a lion, bless God. I'm a daughter. I'm a son of God. I got the lion's blood in me. I'm bold. And you see me witnessing on the street? Yeah, but look at you in the workplace, Kevin. You're so worried about what everybody will think about you. Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to step on anybody's toes. Don't say the name of Jesus too loud. God forbid. You're afraid of what people will think of you. You're living for them and not for me. Oh, 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 oh. Right to the heart. Because that's the only thing that changes you. His first words will offend you, and I'm used to it. So when I got to go to the Lord, I'm like, like I do in my private time, and I'm holding the chair. Recently, it's been the steering wheel. All right, tell me. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. <laughs> you try it. Try it. I put myself out there. You can judge me. You can be critical of me. You can be whatever it is you want. I don't care. I'm trying to help you. I don't have to share this with you. I could keep this as a secret and I could know. I know how to get to power. Do you? I know how to get to transformation. Do you? I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to expose myself in vulnerability and tell you how God deals with me and call out some of the things that he, puts in my, he points to me at. But that's the only way you're going to get help. That's the only way you're going to change. If you don't start doing that, nothing's changing. You'll be the same forever. The gospel, was, the gospel will have no power. Will have no, come on. You can, you can clap. I'll give you that. I tell you all the time, Israel wandered for 40 years and didn't get what they, what they believed God for because they refused to change. They refused to change. So you can live a whole life, love Jesus, inherit the kingdom, and never experience anything. You can be a kind, timid soul, the frozen chosen, whatever it is you are, you know, the church lady, the church guy. You can be the righteous pastor that hasn't sinned in six years. We do the church a great injustice. Leadership of the, change has, leadership of the church has to pivot. If the leadership isn't pushing in, the people will never experience it. If I don't go through hardship, I have no right to sit here and tell you how to endure hardship. If I don't experience the kingdom and not pressing into power, I have no right to sit here and tell you how to experience power when I don't have it myself. And I don't tell you how to experience or bring life transformation in a real way, then I have no right to tell you because I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm reading from a book and giving you five principles to life change. I'm all for five principles to life change, but I'm also for reality. 
know what I'm saying? I'm for practical things, but I'm also for transformational things. The kingdom is both practical and transformative. And the practical is the surface level. It's a foundational level. But the, but the other one, the transformational one, is beneath the surface. It's in revelation. It's in dominion. It's in authority. It's in the spirit. And that's what changes us. You're not changing without power, Christian. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Power and encounter is what transforms the believer. Nothing else. No, it's knowledge. I'm all for knowledge, so let's be clear. Pastor, say it with me. Pastor Kevin is all for knowledge. We are a high word church. The word of God is of extreme value. It is high. But knowledge doesn't transform us. We have more doctrine and more theology than in any other generation, yet we are no different. Our light has our, the light of truth and the gospel knowledge has never been brighter, but the light of our witness has never been dimmer. So you tell me. Knowledge is good, but knowledge without spirit is pointless. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life, you see. Spirit and encounter is what changes people. That's why we do a prophetic team. You know why? Some of you are going to go get a prophetic word, and God's going to give you an encounter. And if you are wise and discerning, you won't let the word shoot over your head. And you won't go, woo, that was nice, woo. You will take the word and go, wow, what does this mean? You know you're ready when you show up over there with your phone. If you all got a recorder on your phone, you're going to go visit the prophetic team, which I encourage you to do. Go and visit the prophetic team. Let them, get them give a word over you. And I'll do a little word on New Testament prophetic. New Testament prophetic is the releasing of the gold of the kingdom in your life. It is not the extraction of the dirt. It is not condemnation. It is not guilt. I tell people all the time, we're going into a gold mine. It doesn't take a genius to find dirt in a gold mine. Ah, oh, I see sin in your life, brother. Oh, I hear the Lord saying there's sin in your life. Well, thank you, genius, for finding the dirt in the gold mine. Thank you. You're not a genius. That's actually Old Testament theology. We're in New Testament reality. New Testament reality is that the prophetic is the extraction of the gold. To see, hear, and feel as heaven feels. And to release life into the person's life. It's not about, shall we call fire down, all of that stuff. It has nothing to do with that. So if you've had a bad prophetic experience, I encourage you to experience the life-giving way here at Elevate Miami Church. Okay, so part of our heritage is dreams. Nehemiah gets a word from the Lord. You ready for this? This is going to help some of you. This is really going to help some of you, if I can make this point correctly. Nehemiah gets a word from the Lord, so he prays, he fasts. Clearly the word from the Lord was in the environment of him going to the king and going back to Jerusalem. He said he fasted, he said he prayed, so he goes before the Lord, right? Fasted for many days, he prays. Next slide. He recognized the prompting, okay? Spiritual and natural prompting. So the spiritual prompting through the Spirit, and sometimes it's through natural occurrences. Sometimes the Lord will prompt you through a natural occurrences. Samuel was given a divine prompting. Samuel, Samuel, he heard the Lord. That's a divine prompting, or that's a spiritual prompting. Nehemiah was given a natural prompting. He heard something that wasn't right, and he was prompted. Do you understand that? So sometimes it's directly from the Spirit. Sometimes it's indirectly from the Spirit through other people in circumstances. He's working both ways. Life is not lining up with divine purpose. He leads. So Nehemiah hears, he fasts and prays. He acknowledges God's and his purposes. He, line, he lines up and he deals with problems. He takes a look at himself because he knows he's about to begin a journey. We're going here, Lord. What needs to happen? What needs to change? What are you calling for? Next slide. Now I had have, he, be, he was never been sad in the king's presence, so he's going before the king to ask the king. And the king's like, what's your problem, Nehemiah? I've never seen you, I've never seen you, um, you know, I've never seen you uh, sad before. Why are you sad in front of me? What is it that you want to ask me? And I love this line. So I, here's, I'll give you the King James Version. So I, Jer I, Nehemiah, became sorely afraid. He said, I became dreadfully afraid. He was so afraid in that moment that it hurt. Well, if God told him to do it, brother, he would never be afraid. He would be fearless. The righteous are bold as a lion. So clearly the Lord didn't tell him to do that because he's afraid. Not really. That's, that's the whole point. You can do it afraid. Most of the time, faith has nothing to do. You can be in fear and still have faith. Jesus in the garden, here's another example. Nehemiah's in faith because he's actually presenting himself, but he's freaking out. He's freaking out so bad that it hurts. He's like, okay. And what's he do? He prays. So I prayed to the God of heaven. There's the shortest prayer in the Bible. 
right? Nehemiah's prayer. So sometime between here and there, Nehemiah prayed. So the king's sitting there and goes, Nehemiah, what are you, what, what, what's up with you? Why are you afraid? Or what's wrong with you? What, what, why are you downcast? And Nehemiah goes, wrong. somewhere between here and here, he said, Lord, help me. <laughs> Jesus, now's the time. <laughs> he offered it to the Lord. He asked for favor. He was afraid, but he took the step. Say, I can be afraid. Come on, I can be afraid and still take the step. Say this with me. It's the start that stops us. Most people's dreams and visions are started before, or stopped before they are ever started because we look at the start. We begin to look at what this is going to take and we feel overwhelmed. This is actually going to be work. Oh my gosh. Well, it couldn't be Jesus. If I had to work for it, it wouldn't be the Lord. Well, who told you that? We look at the impossibility, so we think this is impossible, so we never start. We look at the work involved, so we never start. We look at the difficulties that are involved. Well, this is going to be difficult. You know, I feel like I have a vision to lead a life group, but, man, you know, this, is going to be, this means I've got to give up my Tuesday nights, my Wednesday night. It's going to be difficult. I'm actually going to have to pay for gas. I mean, what is this all about? <laughs> we'll just bring it right into the living room. We feel inadequate. Lord, you, I've never done this before, but I feel like you're telling me to do it, so I'm going to go for it. Some people don't start because they feel inadequate. We, we feel afraid, or we feel weak. None of that matters. God releases things within the heart. We offer it back, and then he gives you the next step. So he tells you, I want you to do this. And then we go, okay, Lord, you're telling me to do this. I want to offer that back to you. Okay, I'm going to surrender that to you. And then he says, I need you to do this. He'll give you the next step. First, you have to receive what he's giving, then you have to offer it back to him, push it back, I call it. We push it back, and if Jesus pushes it back to you, it's him. I do it all the time. He tells me, I'm like, not going to do it. And he'll go, why? And I'll tell him all my reasons, and I'll shove it to him. And he'll go, and shove it right back to me, you know? Or he goes, that's fine, you don't need to do it. But if it's him, he's going to keep bringing it back, and bringing it back, and bringing it back. Next step, next slide. You don't, say this with me, I don't need... The courage to finish. I only need the courage to start. How do you do big things? You start small. Here's the book of Czechoslovakia, in case you didn't know that. That's a spell check, by the way. It's Zachariah. Don't ask me how that happened. In the book of Czechoslovakia, where is the book of Czechoslovakia, man? Is it next to that book that tells me how to get a job? I don't know. What is that? Do not despise the stays of small beginnings. So he's saying even if it starts small or it seems small, don't, get, don't despise it. And this is my favorite part. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. He gets excited to see you actually doing something. He's like, check it out. I've been trying to get her to do that for years. Look at that. She's doing it. Look at him. He's stepping into the vision, finally. Come here, Gabriel. You're going to want to watch this one. Check it out. <laughs> it's like a baby taking their first steps. Mom and dad are going to be jumping up and down when that baby takes the first step. They're going to go, they're doing it. Look at that. Oh, my God. God rejoices to see the work. When you see it as insignificant, it disqualifies you. This is a big piece. God's going to tell you things. You're going to say, I want this. And he's going to say, do that. No, Lord, but I want this. No, do that. And you're not going to understand what that means to this. You're not going to understand it. I feel called to preach the gospel. Take out the trash. What? You're telling me to take out the trash? Lord, I'm called to speak to nations. I am an apostle to the nations, Lord. And you're telling me to take out the trash? Yep, take out the trash. Don't want to take out the trash. No apostle to the nation. Well, you told me I'm going to be apostle to the nation, yeah? Yeah, you start taking out your no, not yet. That's how it begins. He tells you things that are insignificant. You believe him and see great things, and he shows you something that's meaningless to you. Until you embrace the meaningless tasks and the things that seem like they're beneath you or the things that seem like they're unrelated, the very thing that you want won't come. It won't come. Oh, I, that's beneath me. How could I do that? No, that doesn't seem... How does this relate to that? And he doesn't tell you. I have it in my own life. I don't need this, Lord. Do that. Are you kidding? I'm not doing that. You want me to do that? I mean, I can do it, but it just seems like a colossal waste of time. You want me to do that? And I've, I told you, I've ignored things. Things are starting to turn in some different directions that haven't turned in two years. Because two years ago, he told me to do something, and I didn't do it. 
Oh, man, this pastor's in sin, man. This guy's up here. He's repenting. He's saying he's disobedient to the Lord. All that We need to pray for this guy. Now, I'm telling you how it works. It's so easy to gloss over this stuff. It's so easy to blow past this stuff. It's so easy. He tells you, I want you to do that. You want me to do that? But that, I, I mean, I can do it, but it just seems like a waste of time. I don't really, I, I, Kevin, the supreme one, don't see the benefit of that. So I'm not going to do it. And I don't do it. And then I go, all this time goes by and I'm like, Lord, why? Okay, I'm believing you for something. I'm praying. I'm asking you. I'm, you know, you show me some things, but there's some other things that just aren't happening and I need to know why. And then he brings you in a place to where he's like, you really want to know? You really want to know? And he'll point back to something else. He'll point back to that. And, it, and I'm like, never, like Peter, nevertheless, Lord, at your word. Peter didn't bring the harvest in. You want to talk about insignificance? I teach this stuff. I experience this in a reality. Peter's like, Lord, we've toiled all night. We haven't brought in any fish. Jesus says, ready? Move the nets to the other side of the boat. Has anybody fished before? You ever fished with nets? Not just a pole. So you're dragging the net on this side of the boat, and you're not getting anything. And you've got to move the boat. Now you, well, Jesus says, the profound king says, move the net six feet to the other side. And Peter's like, are you kidding me? We have warbled, aren't I? Jesus, you're the pastor, you're the preacher, you're the prophet. You should stick to that. We're the fishermen. We've been doing this our whole lives. But nevertheless, at your word. And until he did the at your word and moved six feet, even though it seemed insignificant to him, it seemed like this doesn't matter. Six feet from one side to the boat, of the fish are under the boat, Lord. They're not beside it. You know what I'm saying? You know, what does it mean to move the, move the net six feet over? It meant everything. Because he wants you to partner with what seems insignificant to you. He didn't tell him why. He just said, move it. And he did. I'm being told to move along. I'm going to move along. Keep taking steps. When you see things as insignificant, it disqualifies the work. If he tells you, Lord, I want to learn to run with the giants, and he says, tie your shoes first. Whatever it is he tells you, start doing that. And do it, and keep going back to him for another answer. Do it, and keep going back to another answer. You guys see Rogue One? You guys ever see Rogue One? Anybody? Star Wars movie. Best Star Wars movie, right? In my opinion. They're all freaked out. Yeah, man, I love that movie. She's like, really? What about episode one? Oh, I'm just kidding. So they, they go out there, and she goes, we're going to keep taking chances. We're going to take a chance, then we're going to take another chance, then we're going to take a chance after that until we either reach the goal or we run out of chances. That's how we move in the Spirit. We keep taking steps and steps and steps and steps and steps until we reach where we need to go or we run out of steps. We have to push past the fear. Don't let it stop you. Don't let the start stop you. Next slide. Everybody say it with me. Don't let the start start stop me. That's right. Do what is necessary. That's the must. Come to the place of the must. This is necessary. Do what is possible, and then you will begin to achieve the impossible. Galatians says this. This is the last point. Don't quit. Don't quit. But you can't not quit until you learn to stop. Start, right? It's like, oh, we're not quitters. Yeah, but you've got to start something in order to not quit something. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. And here's what I would say to that. Nothing is immediate. Say this with me. Nothing. nothing. Come on. You've got to help me with this. Nothing, nothing. is immediate. Is immediate. But, it is but it is eventual. It will come. The Bible says it comes. See, you know, Christian, American Christians, we have it our way and we get it now. We have fast food. I mean, if our food plate isn't on a table and we're in a restaurant in 12 minutes, we've got a problem. We're used to getting everything right now when we order it. Instant. I want to watch that movie. We just point and click now. You know what I mean? everything's immediate. The kingdom isn't necessarily immediate, but it is eventual. It is eventual. It will come if you don't faint. So here's the last points. We're going to bring the prophetic team. So prophetic team, you guys will get ready, and then you guys can make your move over there, and we'll pray, and we'll close in prayer, and then um, just go over, and if you need ministry from prophetic ministry, and you're hungry for it, go for it. Get your phone ready. Believe God for something. Believe God for a word. If you have to wait, well, I'd say don't go back. Your, your word may not be immediate, but it will be eventual. So there may be people you may have to wait in line, but that's okay. It's all right. So here's the last point. Recognize the prompting. This is how this works. We recognize how the Lord is speaking. 
Ready? Say it with me. Recognize the prompting. Offer it to the Lord. Here we go. Here comes the rubber. Have the courage to start and the tenacity to change and keep going. And I'll leave you with one last point. It's always too soon to quit. Amen? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much for these people, these beautiful people. I bless them this morning. A lot's been said, Lord. A lot's been spoken. That your word does not return to you void. It prospers where you send it. Much has been released, Lord. And I declare that this word that has gone forth in all of its forms, would not return to you void. I declare that it falls upon good soil, it roots itself deeply within the heart, and bears fruit. For your honor, for your glory, for the beauty and the wonder of your people, we will just release the atmosphere, God, of your prophetic word and your prophetic spirit to speak to and through your servants and to speak unto those who are about to receive. Again, these are pivot points. These are realities. These are amazing opportunities. And so we just bless you. We honor that, Lord. In Jesus' name. And let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah.